This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Grand Theft Vulcan. Hello everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique podcast that puts the humanities back into science fiction. I am Gep, and I am joined as always by my friend and co-host Dr. Izix. Hi! And this week we watched a confusingly titled episode. Return to Tomorrow. We've returned to watch tomorrow. <laughs> we, we, you're, you're watching... Watchers, or you're listening and or watching, potentially, uh, Watchers of Tomorrow, where we talk about returns tomorrow on Watchers of Tomorrow today. Makes perfect sense to me. Yes. <laughs> this episode was written by John T. Duggan. The fun name. <laughs> what are they uh, all about here? They have not done a lot that pops up. And uh, Do we have any interesting guest stars today? We do. We have a very interesting guest star. Well, it's interesting because this episode actually has, like, three other characters, but only one guest star, which we'll get to later. <laughs> yeah, so uh, someone who I believe has uh, a little bit more than just this episode as far as Star Trek experience goes. Yeah, we are joined this week by Deanna Muldar, who plays Lieutenant Commander Dr. Anne Mulhall. I cannot how remember. I can't remember how they pronounced it in the episode because it's been a bit. Muldur, Mulbadua, Madua, my Muldar. Mulhar. Spelled Mulhal. No. Mulhal. 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 I do not don't know. This might be someone I call Dr. Anne. We'll call her Dr. Anne. Yeah, because I cannot pronounce this last name for the life of me. But but people might know the actress more for her role as Dr. Pulaski yes. in Next Generation. She showed up in this and was like, that voice sounds really familiar. Yes. <laughs> uh, she's apparently played like doctors and a bunch of other stuff too, which is just kind of looking through the cat, you know, her, her credit list here. Um, like um, uh, Dr. Alice Foley in A Year in the Life. Uh, uh, to do where is another one? Uh, Doctor Janet Carlisle in in Quincy, M E. Uh, Doctor Nivens in B J and the Bear, which I've never heard of, <laughs> and so on. She's also on another episode of original series playing another doctor named Miranda Jones, which sounds like a Bond sidekick. She's probably <laughs> a lawyer. Jones. Yes. <laughs> and she's also pretty well known for her reoccurring role in L A Law. Which I had have not heard of, but yeah. Well, I've heard of L.A. at law, but I have no idea what the character's about. Um, oh yeah, she was also a Doctor Leslie Tomskin, uh, a Tomskin in uh, in one of the most one of the most amazing television series of all time, Batman the animated series. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do an episode of ba- uh, Batman at some point. <laughs> yeah, probably one counts somewhere. Well, specifically the animated series. Um, there, there's one with like some robots. Oh, yay. That makes it sci-fi. Exactly. <laughs> now, uh, Deanna Balder, apart from playing Dr. Pulaski, was really interesting to me because she was like listed as being a groundbreaking actor in several things. Like she, she was one of the first women to be on 
the president of the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, and part of the board members of one of the board members of the Screen Actors Guild. So she's she's done a lot, <laughs> quite apart from being the less popular doctor on Next Generation. Yeah, I, I, I you know, for in Next Generation, Doctor Pulaski, I'd say that uh, she does a, a great job you know, portraying the character. Just the character is written in a very annoying fashion. Oh yeah, it's one of those really good actor, bad writer situations. Yes. <laughs> but you know, that's second uh, season TNG where they're not quite as what the heck is first season, but they're still getting their, they're, they're, they're still learning. But back to original series. Yes. Where we have a really good actor as the guest woman on, which doesn't happen as often. And uh, she technically plays two different roles in this, though. But we'll get to that. So we join the Enterprise, being drawn to a planet by a mysterious signal that doesn't exist. Well, if it doesn't exist, then maybe we shouldn't follow it, because that obviously means our uh, instruments are misbehaving. Yeah, it doesn't show up on any of their instruments, even though they pick it up somehow. Which, that's contradictory, people. Oh, well. <laughs> They are hundreds of light years past where any Earth ship has ever been or explored, and they find a planet that was once very Earth-like until some sort of major cataclysm ripped away its atmosphere, leaving the planet now completely lifeless. Uh, in other words, whoops. Just then, a big old booming voice announces itself on the bridge as someone named Sargon. I, for a moment there, I thought it was Zardon, but that's, that's Power Rangers. Zardoz. <laughs> Maybe we should do Zardoz or something. Oh, anyway. We will. <laughs> anyway, back to this episode. <laughs> Sargon demands slash suggests that Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to his cave, which he gives them the location, which is hundreds of miles beneath the planet's surface. Yeah, this seems like a terrible idea to just kind of beam down the situation, but. And again, these guys seem like they could probably uh, squish us like a bug here. So. Yes, when they hesitate slightly about bringing both Kirk and Spock down on the same away mission, which is the only time they seem to have ever worried about sending the entire command crew down on an away mission, yeah. Sargon <laughs> turns the ship off. Well, I'm just going to power down here. Don't mind me. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what were you saying about not bringing Spock? <clears throat> They arrive in the transporter room where they discover a woman, I'm still calling Dr. Anne, <laughs> the astrobiologist, has been ordered to accompany them also by Sargon. Hmm. Hey, I know an actual astrobiologist. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, I went to grad school with her. Uh, I think she's at uh, works in Atlanta these days. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Doesn't go around in spaceships and get talked to by uh, big booming voiced aliens. Uh, no, she mostly studies, uh, you know, the uh, uh, how quantum field equations can relate to chirality. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone gets set to beam down, but before Scotty can even touch the controls, Sargon activates the transporter, beaming down the party, but leaving their security guards behind. Because reasons. They materialize in the bunker hundreds of miles beneath the planet's surface, and here they meet large fiberglass balls. Hmm. Yep, those are some really big balls you got down there. 
The one ball in a plenty thing identifies itself as Sargon, or at least the energy of Sargon's mind stored in some sort of advanced mind ball. Hmm, cool. Um, are you going to show us how to make these mind balls here? Apparently this planet was once home to a super advanced humanoid species that even reached out and colonized many other planets and may have in fact been the progenitor race for humans and or Vulcans. It suggests it's more Vul more likely Vulcans than humans, but... Probably, again, but we never get an answer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> as well as many other races that maybe we'll find out in a very confusing Next Generation episode. So I, I guess the uh, Zargon and his buddies here could uh, explain a couple of particular... Uh, you know, weirdnesses in uh, in uh, TNG and other ways too. Like the one uh, primitive planet that's like these guys seem to be like Vulcans in their pr uh, primitive state. They'll probably have the exact same culture. Also, their 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 makeup looks exactly like Vulcans. This is kind of weird. <laughs> like if you get if you get Earth planets, you get Vulcan planets. It just stands to reason. Yeah. <laughs> So Argon speaks vaguely of the thing that destroyed their world, and Kirk tries to brag about humans survived their nuclear age without blowing up, and Sargon says, We did too, you idiot. We were way past nuclear age, can't you tell? This was a different world-ending thing. Global warming. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> we thought we could play God, I, so I need your body. Yeah, so... We can play God, but um, we can't just summon up a new body for ourselves. Can we borrow yours? Kirk looks pained, and then his voice gets all reverby, and he explains that they all need to take over their bodies temporarily. He explains that Sargon, who is now Kirk, Sargon's wife, and Sargon's greatest enemy, who put aside their differences just before the planet was destroyed, need to inhabit their bodies so that they can build android bodies. But also, if they inhabit their bodies for too long, it will kill them. So Sargon leaves Kirk to think things over. So this seems like a very dangerous and kind of weird prospect here. Yep. They have an <laughs> actual freaking discussion about it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, have, you know, let's make sure everyone's on board. Let's make sure everyone's cool with this. And then we'll uh, probably do it anyway. But, you know, we want to make sure everyone's cool with it first. This is the first time they've ever had a threatening situation that they sat down and discussed first. Yeah. And they actually, like, came to a decision, too. <laughs> Shows maybe a little arm twisting, but it's more of a come on, come on sort. Kirk, Spock, and Dr. Anne, as well as McCoy, who's not going to be inhabited but is the medical professional have a rather long discussion about the pros and cons of lending their bodies to super advanced beings from the past they know nothing about so that they can build android bodies in a poorly conceived plan. <laughs> the plan, by the way, was for them to survive the cataclysm by transferring their minds into a mortal mind energy ball thing so that sometime later their descendants would figure out space travel, travel to this planet, get drawn in by their mysterious know-nothing-whatever signal, get taken over by their consciousnesses to, to build android bodies that they totally knew how to build and didn't build before for some weird reason. Um, I think there's a, 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 you know, a clip I should uh, you know, reference here uh, of a Cyberman saying, there is logic to that or something like that. <laughs> This is absurd. <laughs> Kirk gives a sort of okay speech. He's been giving some better speeches this season. He's getting practiced. 
about how advancement requires risk and how basically everything they do is risky and how much they could learn from being told things by these super advanced aliens because we don't care about his last big speech about how cultures have to evolve at their own pace anymore. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, people that uh, don't have the ray guns, they got to evolve on their own. Those that do, they get to take it from the aliens. Yep. <laughs> they all decide that this body snatching arrangement is just fine with them. All right. So um, we're going to turn over our bodies and hopefully nothing terrible happens to us in the meantime. They set up the fiberglass balls in sick bay so that they can do the transfer supervised. Kirk gets Sargon again. Dr. Anne gets Sargon's wife, Thalesa. Very weird. It's hard to pronounce. Spock gets Sargon's greatest enemy, Henoch. Henoch? Hmm. Almost like Enoch, but different. Sargon and Thalesa make out briefly. As you and do. talk about how great it is to have bodies again. Hmm. So, um, do we really need to uh, get onto that android building business right away, or... Can we um, uh, test our new bodies? Um. Well, they do need to get to the android building because they both immediately collapse because the stress of making out tired them. So, <laughs> yeah, they they seem to be burning through their bodies very quickly here. And Hannah comments on how much better Vulcan bodies seem to be. Yeah, they yeah, the, yeah Vulcans are yeah you know, they're like I guess higher metabolism rates or something like that, and so they're like yeah, it's like just like our old bodies were. Yeah, he gets to persist in the Vulcan body for several hours. It's almost like the consciousnesses match or something. Yeah, so this does kind of give more credence to uh, Spock's comment about ancient legends or something like that. He now has enough time to concoct a serum that will help control the metabolic symptoms of the body swapping and allow the other two to stay in Kirk and Dr. Anne basically indefinitely. Very useful. Nurse Chapel assists Hinnock in making the serum, but notices that one of these serum vials is not the same as the others. Hinnock admits that he plans to let Kirk die in a bid to kill Sargon for some reason. He then uses some sort of hypnosis-y Vulcan, maybe Vulcan, maybe his own power, it's unclear, thing to force Nurse Chapel to forget all about the other formula. And Chapel's like, I'm, what were we talking about? Sargon and Thalesa begin to work on the androids that they will use as their new bodies while flirting a lot. As you do. <laughs> Hennick, meanwhile, gives a very creepy speech about how horrible being in unfeeling android bodies will be. Wait a moment, you're not going to you know, uh, make, build them so you could have a sense of, sense of touch? But Why would you do that? Seems, seems useless-y. Like, how would you even... If, like, even without those like basic sensory perceptions, how would you even move the danked thing? Yes, I have no sense of where this limb is. I, I can't get the feedback necessary in order to make it do a thing. Yeah, which we, we should actually talk about later, because that's a thing. Sargon also keeps getting tired, but you know he thinks it's nothing that his next injection won't take care of. His next injection of death? Later, Theresa is working on her android alone. Scotty comes in and complains about he thinks their stupid advanced alien technology will never work. Well, it's given that they're obviously using computer parts from, you know, the 1960s, the, he might have a, a point there. 
Hannock enters, tells Scotty off, and makes him leave, and then starts convincing Thrace about how bad living in an android body is going to be. So, um, I don't think this guy's a very nice person. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be. Do you think he's a villain for today's episode? I mean, they they pretty much said he was, because he's going to, like, kill Kirk. That's usually what the villains do. Oh, yeah. Forgot about that. <laughs> Later on, Sargon and Thrace are discussing how she kind of wants to keep this body that she's got, but Sargon will hear none of it until he falls over. Koi rushes in to announce, you're dead, Jim. Oh, no. He doesn't J- say J- that, but he really should have. Jim, you're dead, Jim. Wait. <laughs> McCoy stabilizes Kirk's body, but without Sargon, his mind is now trapped in a glowing ball. They have no idea how to reunite them. Well, maybe we could do like a shuffle thing, like you know, you know, uh, you know one of the, the the mind people jumps into Kirk's uh, Kirk's body, and then into the sphere, and then back into the now vacant body, and then back to their own sphere. I'm pretty sure that was an episode of Stargate. I think so, too. Yeah, actually. (laughs) I think they did something similar in Futurama, too. (laughs) Hanok has finished the android and made it look sort of kind of human. Looks kind of uh, sickly, honestly. Mm -hmm. He asks if Theresa wants it, and she gets upset and decides, no, I'll keep this body after all. Thank you. Well, I guess um, you've been successfully corrupted, um... Are you going to uh, rule the galaxy together? Is that the plan here? Or are you just going to be running off with each other's bodies? Just running away, I guess. She runs off to sickbay and offers to save Kirk in exchange for keeping Dr. Anne's body all to herself. McCoy doesn't really like this plan, but she argues that, come on, you don't, you don't really know her that well. And plus, she's a guest star. Yeah. You, you barely know her, so... Sh- Die, that's, it's fine. Koi's like, what? <laughs> really? I, I might be a, kind of an asshole as a doctor and all that, but no, no, this is ridiculous. When McCoy refuses, she gets really mad and uses her mind powers to hurt him, but then goes, oh my god, I hurt you with my mind powers. Mind bullets, oh, sorry. She says that Sargon is right and their power is just too much of a temptation and then Sargon's voice booms out and says, Ah, I'm glad you reached this conclusion on your own. Also, Hinox's an idiot and I'm still alive. <laughs> I, the all-powerful Sargon! Wait, now I sound like the bad guy. <laughs> they have McCoy leave. Sickbay locks itself very briefly. Uh, Nurse Chapel, who was in there, walks out a moment later very blank-faced. McCoy enters to find Kirk alive and well, as long as Dr. Annan back in her own body, but all of the mind balls are melted. Now, I can't be sure, because the way the props look, but it seems pretty likely that they took what looked like large fiberglass orbs and just set them on fire. Yep. This can't be good for you. (laughs) Nope. (laughs) Hmm. Hopefully no one was around when they were doing the fire business, otherwise, yeah. Yeah. Also, since one of those balls had Spock's mind in it, Kirk tells McCoy that he's dead now, but there was no other way. Well, this seems like kind of a dick move. Also, now he needs McCoy to make some super Vulcan poison so that they can kill Spock's body, too. This also seems like a dick move, so you're double-killing Spock today. Never leave a job (laughs) half-finished. 
On the bridge, Hanok is using his superpowers to torture the crew and doing what he says. You must follow my orders! I'd get me out of here. When McCoy enters, he laughs at them all because he can read all their thoughts and knows exactly what they know and knows that they're going to poison him. So he orders Nurse Chapel to take the poison from McCoy since she's probably still under his mental control. Yes. She does this, but then immediately stabs him with it. Oh no, your sudden but inevitable betrayal. Hannah goes, ha, I'll just jump to another body. Oh no, Sargon, let me go to another body. Ugh, I'm dead. Well, I guess that's the end of Hennock. And also Spock. Mm. Kirk gets really sad, but only for a second, because Spock gets up. Oh, uh, wait, oh, Hennock's back. Oh God, kill him again, kill him again. Turns out that Spock was in Chapel's brain. Hey, well, what happened to Chapel then? Well, I don't know, she was in there too, I guess. She looks really happy about it in a slightly creepy way. Oh, well, I, I guess, you know, the, you know, her and Spock's relationship has gone to the next level. In a very confusing sort of fashion. Also, that wasn't poison. They just made McCoy believe it was poison so that Hinnock would know that McCoy was thinking about poison and die. Interesting. Sort of a mind-over-body sort of situation. Sargon sees now that because they got rid of the one guy who was abusing the power to try to take over, and his wife who was maybe going to be corrupted but used that to come to her own realization about how they shouldn't misuse their power and be nice now his plan won't work okay so so then what this you're just giving up then i this is a baffling ending here what <laughs> all of the obstacles in the way of my plan to help humanity grow and learn in a way that would prevent them from meeting the same fate as us are gone, so it won't work. So, um, I so the, you know the, uh, the the once again I have to reference that clip of the the Cyberman saying there's logic in what he says, and I'm just like what? <laughs> and they ask if they can borrow Kirk and Doctor Anne's bodies again, and then they kiss, which I think they'd they go leave the room for a bit, or you know be alone for a second. But no, they just make out in the middle of the bridge and go, okay, we're dead now. And then Kirk and Dr. Anne are back. And Chapel goes, oh, so romantic. So, um, that was a really confusing ending. It was. It was, it was deeply confusing. But I guess we have to return to status quo. We can't have super uh, mind power people, robots, just sort of floating around in the universe. So, yeah. Eh. <sighs> See... <laughs> I think that the problem with the ending is an overall problem that I had with this episode, which is that they, they took what could be a really, really interesting premise to start from. And then they they seemed like they were going in a direction with it that I expected. They were like, hey, we set aside all of our old differences and we kept, you know, both sides of our war got to survive in this, like, fallout sheltery thing. Because we realized that the war was pointless, but it was too late to avert the devastation of the planet. And I was like, oh, the bad guy from the war is going to still He's have the, the grudge yeah. and try to kill them. But no, he just wants the body or something. He just, he's just doing it for no reason. They don't have an ideological difference. There's, there's no, he's not, doesn't have an old grudge. He's, he's just doing it. I guess it might be trying to convey, even maybe accidentally, uh, that there is a 
a, a difference of the moral, moral character between the two sides. That one was due to uh, their their uh, innate sort of uh, philosophy, were very uh, you know you know prone to uh, you know you know you know it's like we're only going to use what we need in order to get forward, but we're not going to try to uh, you know abuse the power. And the other side's like, yeah, we're just going to do whatever, whatever feels good for us. Very um, uh, 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 I'm brain farting right here. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, yeah, you're right. It does. It has the same basic moral problem that all morally two-dimensional villains have. Just if if you're only shown the one side, and then the other side is just doing bad things against the one side, then they're just evil for the sake of being evil, which denotes like a deep moral difference. Like this one side is morally good, the other side is just morally evil, and that's just how things are. And just kind of lazy. <laughs> Which I think is just a setup problem, partially. We never find out anything about this war. We never find out what the, the you know, what what were the differences? What were the philosophical or belief differences or strategic resource allocation? Like why why were people fighting in the first place? Um, people don't just have wars because wars happen. It's clearly what color of hats to use in the temple and when they where they worship their uh, the, the all powerful cloister. Um, and then they can't never have hats again. Yes. <laughs> and the, and the, strategic, the strategic resources was the dye factories that they're fighting over. It's interesting that Star Trek just doesn't seem to have hats, isn't it? I mean, they, they occasionally show up in like really strange alien worlds, like, you know, bar scenes or something like that. But that's more of a the exception rather than the rule. Or unless it's a holodeck program. I had a... So the other thing that I wish they'd done that they they hinted at a little bit was kind of the it's sort of one of the downside to immortality ideas which the entire plan their entire thing revolves around the fact that they have such great mental powers that they can basically remove their minds from their bodies and put them into other things which i i guess i'll sort of buy fine and your mind's different than your brain so sure transfer your energy or whatever the heck uh, we've covered brain transplanting stuff as something that wouldn't work before. <laughs> so, assuming this kind of bogus premise actually does work. <laughs> but the entire crux of the episode, the entire moral discussion that they're trying to have is about how much are you willing to sacrifice to not die? And at what point does that become not worth it? Yeah, how, you know, the resources necessary in order to perpetuate your life uh, when does it become unethical to take more? No, it's not even resources in this one. It's how much of being alive are you willing to sacrifice to technically not be dead? Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, that too. <laughs> Sorry. Because they, they got rid of their physical autonomy for thousands of years in these space mind ball things. And then their plan is to put themselves in immortal robot bodies that can't feel in the same way and will be unpleasant for thousands and thousands of years and then build more robot bodies and do the same again so so at what point if you can't feel things is kind of their question like if you can't feel things if you can't touch and have sensation and enjoy life why are you still alive it kind of comes down to what is the fundamentals of their psychology and what things do they need in order to sustain that in a functional fashion? Uh, 
if you actually need that physical touch of, of your physical body, of like your original body, and you're lacking that, that, yeah, that would be very torturous. But yeah, you could, you know, but to continue on without it, uh, you know, and you might, you know, require a fundamental change in how your 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 internal structure sort of works in the mental uh, mental fact. Well, this is actually ties into an interesting uh, discussion that sort of the medical community has started having recently around end of life care, mm-hmm. which is kind of what does it mean to someone to have a life worth living? Because the current kind of medical thinking is we need to keep people from dying, which means we need to keep them from dying at any cost. And that worked fine when any cost meant we could do CPR on you for a bit. But now any cost means we can hook your brain up to a bunch of electrodes and keep you alive long after you have any semblance of brain activity or you know, anything else that we would call interaction with the outside world. Trapped in the jars, effectively. So there's sort of a discussion going on of maybe you should interview people or figure out through some other means like what did this person what is this person's life about what is important to them what is it that they need to be able to keep doing in order to consider themselves having a good life and those are the things we need to prioritize so like someone who's a been an athlete or something for ages is maybe like well i need to prioritize being able to move around and keeping my physical autonomy to all extents and when i lose that i'm pretty much consider myself my life not worth living anymore somebody else and they're like well as long as i can still see my family at thanksgiving and have dinner i'm pretty good and then uh, you know you get you know, some folks where it's like i want to daydream all the time so i'm kind of just cool with it, whatever as long as i can do that but if i can't do that then yeah then no so it kind of deals with this like the whole episode is trying to deal with this like fundamental fear of death as the worst thing possible do all that you can to avoid death and all of them seem to have some slightly different motivations for doing so and then the more and more degraded their lives become the more they start to be like no we want to hold on to a particular kind of life not just living for the sake of living now, the only one that doesn't particularly is Sargon, which is a pretty interesting thing to look at because, one, he seems to be the most okay after having been in mental isolation for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Well, he got the uh, the better spot there. He got to hang out in a room. He wasn't just stored on a shelf. Now, I thought that was interesting for two things. Like, one, he seems to have this, like, incredible sense of purpose that they give him in the episode is a whole deal is we need to survive so that we can pass on our knowledge to those that come after yeah, which is a uh, very altruistic so to him that's basically the goal anything that he needs to sacrifice to make that happen is worth it because that is his like fundamental purpose in life yeah so you know if i you know it, no matter you know how much suffering or lack of you know having a physical body or whatever uh, that I have to endure in order to basically be a warning for folks in the future and, and to, you know, allow me to guide them past the obstacles that we have uh, had to suffer through. Yeah, that's that that is fundamentally worth it. And you know, and all the other stuff that's kind of you know that's you know that's it's stuff I, I can work through. That's also something uh, particularly we've talked about this a little bit before as the kind of sense of purpose in life being the thing that seems to matter the most generally 
because we we have this thing that's going on right now that people are calling the happiness crisis. Everyone's kind of upset. Yeah, and one of the key things that seems to be with that is um, people keep basically going to you know therapists and saving some variation of I have everything that I'm supposed to have to make me happy, but I am unhappy. And a large part of that seems to be this feeling of a lack of purposefulness in your life because you've like, you know, set up a situation in which you're supposed to just work at something you don't really care about so that you can acquire enough things to make you happy. But if you're doing things you don't really care about, you wind up with sort of a purposeless, meaningless feeling that makes you unhappy. If, on the other hand, you're doing something that you really care about but doesn't provide as many material benefits, those people often feel happier up to the point that the material benefits start to kind of, you know, undermine your ability to live, but that's a slightly different thing. You know, if you can't make the bills, then you have other things that are now a problem. Um, in fact, I'll, I'll you know, mention a little bit of my own experience in this, that uh, a few years back, I was in a job for a couple of years that I felt like I was kind of wasting everyone's time by being there. <laughs> the uh, there, there was other reasons why I left, but that was one of the things that was kind of gnawing at me the most at the, uh, at the end of the day, that the projects I was working on were useful, but very in the very 17 steps down in the abstract. Uh, and it's like, well, I don't super care about what I'm doing. I could do it, but I don't see the, the end here. I don't see where, where this is going to amount to anything, even on a very sort of surface level here. And so I was like, eh, I'm going to use this as part of my consideration for when I leave. And well, eventually other considerations teamed up with it and I left. So. I fully understand that sort of you know, draining sense that uh, being in a situation like that can bring. Yeah, and I haven't really seen a lot of people talk about this. They may have. I just haven't seen other people comment on this. So this is coming purely from like personal speculation. But humans, as we've talked about before, are intensely social. One of the most social animals on the planet. And we like to talk to each other. And feeling useful to the community is a big part of that. It seems to be pretty baked in. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not feeling useful to the group, you can't, you know, live. You can't live as a community. You can't continue to live as a group. Like, evolutionarily, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, uh, we're a species that operates on a community level. That if the members of that community are all, uh, you know, quote, rugged individualists who have no care for anyone else, that the community is not going to exist. Uh, and then everyone's going to have a lot more difficult time surviving. Um, but if you are in a, you know, but if you have at least some inkling of, hmm, maybe I should do something for the sort of the common good of everybody here, then you're more likely to survive, even if it's a, even just a speck of it. Uh, but most people have a lot more than just a speck. And, you know, there are, Lots of people that maybe try to deny that part of them, but it ends up coming back and, well, that they end up in the situation described where they're just kind of feeling unhappy. Now, the other uh, interesting thing that I thought about with, like, Sargon as an example is being left alone with nothing but your own mind for that long. Um, either you're going to go crazy, which, like, 
if if it was humans, you definitely would, because you know several weeks of isolation is enough to completely mentally devastate a human. Well, they had the other mind spheres to talk to, and eventually, all but uh, the three were uh, went dark. Possibly, it's not clear <laughs> how much they get to talk to each other. Yeah, it's not really established at all. Um, but I, I was thinking about that that uh, that maybe Zargon did kind of lose it at some point. And, and so that's would kind of explain the ending. Yeah, that's yeah. true. <laughs> it's like, well, I have shown people that something is the way. I'm out now. Bye. I'm done. <laughs> the other thing is if you're just, if the only thing you have to think about for that long is your own mind, um, you could get to what, for lack of a better term, I will call enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Because just there's there's plenty of doctrines like both spiritual and kind of uh, therapeutic that call for basically just looking inward. Mm-hmm. So having nothing to think about for that long, but how your own mind functions, you could actually get to some pretty interesting places that would have you operating in a very probably altruistic way, but also with these, you know, a better ability to just deal with things in general because Sargon seems to be the only one that's like not being weird out there uh i also thinking about the other uh, two characters there uh so i have Hanok may have been in it to originally just to survive but maybe at some point his motivate you know internal motivation was more to uh basically one-up Zargon in some fashion um and so, you know, it's like, well, maybe if I'm the one who survives, uh-huh. but that wasn't really established either. Uh, but uh, Thalassa, uh, however you pronounce it, I think her main go was sort of being overly reliant on Zargon, unfortunately, uh, because why is she even in the mind sphere? She's she's she was married to Zargon, I guess. She builds a robot. She seems to be some sort of sciencey person. But you know the you know you got the, sort of the two leader type peoples and one of their lady friends. Hmm. Now you could look at the entire thing as an interesting kind of analogy for uh, parents, because they keep calling like humans and Vulcans their children because of the whole we went out and colonized space thing. They keep saying we left our seed on planets, which made me very uncomfortable. You. So you've got kind of the Sargon thing, which is I'm going to be pretty hands off, but my main goal is to give you enough knowledge that you don't make the same mistakes that I do, which a lot of people would call kind of a pretty altruistic, good version of parenting. I will you be have, your guide, but I will not you know, I'll, I'll be controlling. And you have Theresa, who feels owed, which is a pretty interesting one. At one point, she even says, like, we are the progenitors of these species. A few bodies is something that you owe us. So, uh, one of those, uh, it's like, I put all this work into making you and raising you and whatever. And now you have to do stuff for me. So a very transactional view of the situation. Yeah. Which I don't like in parenting. Like I've heard some arguments with this, but it basically for me comes down to the kids don't get to decide whether they want to be in this transaction which makes it a one-sided contract, which is pretty unfair when you think about it, and mo- mostly unethical. 
And uh, there are situations where the parents are just kind of awful. And then they come back and say, but you still owe me. Like, no, that's very manipulative and awful. Stop it. And then you hit the other extreme with Hanok, who's basically, if I can be in charge, like, I have to keep tight control and be in charge and dictate everyone to everything, and that will lead us into the new kind of fascisty golden age. Yeah, I don't like this guy. <laughs> mm. do, do it as I, you know, do as I say, otherwise you'll, you'll face punishment or, yeah. Mm. They didn't do it well. They did leave it with this very, like, moral message of the bad guys are just immoral because they are. But if you look at it in that kind of way, if you have Sargon being more of what would be representative of the, you know, archetypal Western politics that they were using as a stand-in at this time, so the democratic sort of thing, and... Hanok is a representation of the more kind of fascist dictatorships that they were dealing with. Uh, this could be an interesting argument for why maybe you shouldn't just always, you know, blindly go, well, we should put aside our differences because of this thing and never actually address that one of these schools of thought is like fundamentally flawed. Yeah, it could uh, lead to some problems such as trying to steal people's bodies and using them as they see fit. Yeah, you have everyone talking right now about how we have this big crisis of not being able to talk to each other and we have divided politics. And to a certain extent, there certainly has been a bit of that. I'm not going to argue there's nothing that going on. But just putting aside differences ignores the fact that there are some, you know, there are some philosophies and some schools of thought that will do actual harm if not addressed. Yeah, the, the, the schools of thought that are incompatible with you know uh, me existing are probably not ones i can ignore and that makes you wrong and tribalist and uh, such welcome to my ted talk yep <laughs> so yeah yeah they, they, they perhaps should have had i don't know in the six thousand centuries they were uh, hanging out there done a little bit of chatting together to try to hash out all this nonsense and uh Maybe come to a more harmonious uh, sort of uh, state of being before their children showed up. Because, you know, they had enough time to sort of sort this out, right? I think that's an in it's an interesting one to look at how they keep having... They keep having beings with extreme mental powers show up in this show. And they do it in such a 60s way as compared to something like, like a little later, like some stuff that shows up in the 70s, like Star Wars. Um... Where in these, it's all implied to be like, we worked really hard and fought and evolved and got to a point where our mental powers were just so vast and we innately have these things because we're just better than you through hard work and determination. The Protestant work ethic on steroids. When you get to something in the 70s, when you're getting more of the mainstream of of some of the hippie ideas that were being vastly demonized in the 60s um, and you hit into something like Star Wars he still has a little of this you're probably born with the force thing it's not really clear in the original trilogy um, they don't go into that into the like whether you need to be born in or not but it is very heavily implied that it's anyone could do some level of this if you think about it enough it's a very it's a much more kind of uh, Eastern way of looking at power that it comes from something internal as opposed to something like external that is 
given to you or that you got through striving and determination. It's just this kind of like everyone has access to this if you know how, but it's not sort of a force, brute force sort of thing. It's more of a you need to unlock this through contemplation and meditation and other such things. Probably some level of self-control if you're using the uh, Eastern philosophies, but not necessarily once you get into more of the Westernization type thing. Yeah, Luke couldn't uh, pick up things with his mind, you know, from the get-go. He had to, he had to sort of, you know, you know, center himself, you know, you know, unravel the the knot that prevents him from tapping into that power, and then was able to do it. But he also couldn't do it through trying too hard. Yeah. <laughs> There is no try. There is only do. <laughs> but in all of these episodes, it's just been, we are a super advanced alien race who did super advanced Protestant-y work ethic things, and that gave us super advanced mental powers. You can too if you eat your vegetables and listen to your parents. And where are your parents, by the way, just so you know? <laughs> uh, I tried to look up some stuff about uh, plans for what to do uh, like after a you know a nuclear war or something like that, but I wasn't able to get much good info. Uh, plenty of stuff like about preppers and things like that, but I don't, that doesn't really fit with the theme of today's episode, unfortunately. Also, they didn't have a you know nuclear bunker; they had an atmosphere stripping bunker. Yeah, it's a lot deeper. <laughs> I also think that's an interesting one. I don't have any direct evidence for this; it's just some speculation. But uh, you keep seeing things from this time period and later talking about how plant like stripping the atmosphere it's like a not uncommon planetary disaster that seems to be a kind of a like go-to in star trek and some other science fiction starting around this time that was one of the things they thought might happen when they were testing hydrogen bombs you know, you ignite the atmosphere and uh, burn away everything that we have and you'll have no oxygen left so i i'm not sure how much inspiration they were taking from that but they were definitely like scientists at the time were like hey maybe we should calculate this out and be like is this gonna set fire to the atmosphere and kill literally everything on the planet because that'd be bad let's not do I mean, that i feel like some of it was the reactionary reactionary science writing like the same kinds of people who were saying that a super collider is going to create a black hole and kill us all <laughs> I, I have to check out that website again uh, has the lhc destroyed the earth yet <laughs> whatever it was <laughs> it just has no <laughs> yeah 148 days since earth destroyed last time earth destroyed <laughs> uh yeah the, the, the science reporting has a long history of a mix of really good reporting and really terrible reporting. And sometimes the people that are good at one are also prone to the other, uh, which is a little upsetting and really kind of is a pain in the ass when you're trying to get your, uh, your stuff out there. Um, but it is very easy for folks that are not science literate or only uh, lightly science literate to take a, a, a statement that is very built in the realities of the world and use you know, interpret the, the very jargon-heavy language in a certain fashion that blows things wildly out of proportion. Uh, and so it's like, oh, yes, yeah, this is, you know, the, you know, uh, this is a, a, a nuclear re resident imaging device. Oh, no, it's atomic. Oh, no, it's going to explode. No, it's it's using, like, radio waves and things like that to do stuff. About, you know, spin orbits. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> Oh, it's, I, this is a complete aside, but we're pretty much done with the philosophy for this episode anyway. 
Uh, we could always go go back to body autonomy. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> there was a very interesting um, list of things that was like the science reporting is can be pretty bad and extreme, but like it's not necessarily because like the reporters are just latching onto these things and trying to overblow it. There are so many steps like between the actual science getting done and it getting to the reporter that like. You know, first it has to be put into the journals, and the journals only take certain kinds of things that are usually big and slightly prone to reactionary stuff. And then the people who write the press releases aren't necessarily scientists or involved with the project in the first place. And then by the time the reporters get their hands on it, it's been boiled down to such a degree that they probably can't understand it no matter what they do. As someone who has uh, done some uh, you know, publishing in uh, like you know, legit science journals, uh, yeah, there there are some some things that's like okay, you're asking me in the editorial process of the uh, of of getting the the uh, the, art, uh, the article put together, uh, uh, not not the like the uh, pop science stuff, but the stuff that goes into the science journal. Uh, you're you're I'm getting requests to include things that are are not sensical, or you're asking questions that aren't aren't even applicable. And if I try to even answer them in the paper, that's going to make the paper worse. So uh, yeah, there's there's a sort of a, a complicated process. You're just sort of uh, as a uh, someone in you know who's, who writes you know uh, uh, papers as far as their uh, you know like a professor or something like that. Um, that you have to sort of get through this minefield first, and then sometimes you don't do it well enough, and you, you know, your original ideas and intents get sort of phrased in a certain fashion, which then, as you say, gets sort of propagated forward in a more and more complicated and mangled fashion. So let's not just jump on blaming the reporters. Everybody all the way down needs to change, especially science journals. Yeah, oh, oh yes. <laughs> I can go on a whole rant about that. <laughs> so so the short version is they, uh, you know, you know how when you say write a article for like a, a big newspaper or something like that, they pay you, right? Yes. In science journals, you pay the journal to publish your work. You don't get a dime from it. <laughs> and then they charge universities and uh, you know, you know, organizations and things like that money to see the journal. So they're basically taking money from both ends. Yep, they get it coming and going. Exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's um it's a bit of a racket and there's a been a lot of uh movement of late to push for open access journals, so Okay, if you're you're still charging people to get their articles in the journal, you can at least do people a solid by making it so people can actually read them. Though I just heard this thing, which was really interesting to me as someone who sometimes has to do research for things. Uh, I haven't taken advantage of it, but if any of you listening have to work on a research project and run into this thing of like, oh, pay us however much dollars to see it from the journal or university... You're 100% allowed to write to the person who did the mm -hmm. original study and ask for it, and they are 100% allowed to give it to you, and they usually will. <laughs> you know, I've, I've not, uh, my papers aren't important enough to have someone basically do that sort of request, but if anyone uh, does uh, find my, my articles and do, does want copies of them, I can send them if you want to learn, uh, learn about flute vortices. Or high-energy lightning. Anyway. <laughs> I just remembered there was one thing that I said we would get back to because I had some interesting things about oh, it yeah, just yeah. randomly. Um, so the idea that these android bodies would not have any type of physical sensation 
That seems like a design flaw. It is. Like, including, like, where you are in space, probably. Because that's a physical sensation. Mm -hmm. Um, This is things that people deal with. I don't know the name for this one, but there is a fairly rare disorder that basically makes people not have the ability to feel pain. Oh, yeah. Which sounds great until you remember that that is a way that you avoid damaging yourself. It's like, huh, I have just punched this wall really hard and I don't feel any of it. But my fingers yeah. don't seem to work anymore. What? There was basically an interview a while ago with someone who's lived with this condition for several years. And they said, basically, if it's an option ever, they don't want to be cured of it. Because at this point, they've broken their arm like five times and gone through all these other major injuries because of this. So... If they didn't have this disorder, they'd be living in constant agony, even though it is something that's basically going to kill them eventually because they can't feel when they're doing something like overstressing their shoulder. So yeah, they have decided that they would like to not live in, in constant pain uh, in exchange for a shorter life. Hmm. But the other thing... Um, the being able to tell where your body is in space is this interesting concept that people have come up with. And they kind of sometimes call it like the the sixth sense, even though the idea of uh, five basic senses that you're taught in school has been out of date for like 30 years and no one just bothers to tell you. Yep. Um, <laughs> well, it was having you know, things be more complicated will require updating the curriculum. You know, we can't do that. So this is something that is pretty commonly called proprioception proprioception and it's basically just the physical feeling of where your body is like if you close your eyes and stick your arm out to the side you have a pretty good idea of where your hand is relative to your body even though you're not actually touching anything that would give you that idea sort of a a, a relational sort of situation where you can sort of link your, your 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 center of your mind to where things are in sort of your relative coordinates yeah we have Flat out zero idea how this works. And there have been people who have lost this sense for no one knows why. It's pretty rare, but there have been cases of people who have completely lost all sense of proprioception. Yeah, that that seems like it would be a terrible thing. I, I would probably not be able to dance anymore. Yeah, you probably couldn't. It's adaptable, and this is something that you would have to do in like the Android sort of thing. Uh, they basically have to look at their movements 100% of the time. Because they can tell where their body is if they look at it, they just can't feel where it is otherwise. So it becomes this weird thing. You you have to relearn how to do everything. You can function, I don't think 100% again, but you can continue to function. But now you have to see everything that you're doing. To make make, uh, walking difficult, especially if you need to go over rough terrain. Yeah, there's probably some some considerations you have to make for this. I'm sure it doesn't give you full mobility, but it's an interesting thing that has happened to people, and it's one of those weird ones. Like we don't know how this works in the first place, so of course we don't know why it goes away. Yeah, the idea of not having that is kind of frightening, to be honestly. Yeah, don't take it away from me, please. I mean, I mean, that would suck. In fact, uh, it is very, very scary. I, 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 actually, people sometimes, you know, going back to mentioning dancing, I do enjoy dancing and, uh, you know, get me a good crazy house speed or something like that, whatever. Um, but uh, people 
seem to think I'm good at it, but I think the thing that works for me uh, that allows me to sort of let loose as I do is that I am very sort of aware of where my various limbs are at uh, any point in time. And I guess the, the, the exercise is to try to figure out how many different sort of arrangements I can explore just by moving to the beat. And that's kind of how I dance. <laughs> <laughs> and that doesn't sound like you're bad. Not having seen it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but just sort of knowing how I, 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 how I motivate my movements in that sort of uh, context kind of makes it hard for me to judge my own ability at dancing. So yeah. <laughs> but I, I do enjoy it and, you know, you know, to be without that sort of perce- uh, you know, ability to perceive myself as, as such would be basically make me unable to have that have that bit of joy in my life. Yeah, there's nothing else about this particularly. It was just an interesting thing that I remembered from the robots. And everyone got to learn about me dancing. But until they come out with Dance Dance Revolution Star Trek Edition to partner with that Star Wars game. Yeah, yeah there, there are others. Uh, yeah, I've seen people do the, the, the dance game with the Star Wars disc at, at parties before. <laughs> I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I don't think we have anything else major and we're pushing on the one hour mark here. All right, so let's, let's, let's get some, uh, so let's start. I'm going to go tally the points. You go get us our intro. Yes, I think that because we explored more philosophy than I thought we'd actually get to in this episode and some weird psychology and dancing. Now it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, I'm recovering from being a little sick here, so uh, forgive me if my voice is a little weird, but we have uh, tallied up all the points and we're able to uh, give out some uh, prizes here for those who have managed to accomplish a great uh, number of things, I think. Hmm. Anywho, the the first uh, uh, set of prizes are the Hard Drive Brain Prize, which goes to Kirk, Spock, and Muldaur, uh, Mulhall, Mulhall, yeah, hmm. Yeah, um, and Chapel for uh, having their entire minds imported and or exported from the skulls at various times. What do they win, Gepwin? They win one of those VPNs I keep hearing so much about and maybe would like to give us money for sponsorship things to keep their brain hard drives safe from brain hacking, which I imagine would be, like, a bad problem. Yes. Brain hacking is uh, a future threat that you don't even aware, you're not even aware of yet. Tune in uh, to, to the future where your brain will be, uh, you know, under my control. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not going to take of your brain. Um, but maybe maybe someday. Anyway, uh, the Specially Advanced Aliens Award, which is going to Sargon and Thassala and Hedak. What do they win, Gepwood? They win what goes around, comes around. For They went out, space explored, left colonies everywhere, eventually died. It's probably cyclical. Hmm. Now we get to do the same. Hmm, I don't not much of a fan of cyclical history. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> our uh, third uh, uh, prize is the Too Weird to Die prize, which goes to Spock for, again, due to having very high metabolism and other weird stuff going on here, allows him to just sort of import cosmic beings into his skull with no issues. What does he win, Gepwin? 
Spock gets one of those mind ball things so that he can go be left alone from all of the horrible, horrible things that these inferior humans are doing to him and maybe realize that he can actually take over. Well, he's going to be uh, in a, 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 a sphere for a while. I hope they don't forget him on like some random planet where he's just left on a shelf then. Our final award is the Everybody Loves Robots Award, which goes to our uh, unloved, unused android body that will never get to experience life or the joys of the world. What does it win, Gepwin? The android gets what's my new headcanon for this episode, where it gets ejected out of the airlocks because they couldn't think of a use for it, lands on a random planet where some dude named Soon finds it and uses it as the basis for all of his android experiments. Hmm. I was thinking something similar, Gepwin. Oh, uh, take us away. I don't got anything else. My throat really hurts right now. <laughs> uh, thanks for all our contestants. It's late, so I couldn't think of good prizes, and that's on me. I'll fully cop to that. I should have prepared for this segment. But thank you for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show. We're there. We're there. Where are we? We've we've gotten to to one of the more famous episodes. Yes. Let's it's I don't it's it's oof. Yep. We're uh we had we had Mafia Planet already. It's time for the yep. uh, the next level up from that. Next level up from Mafia Planet. This is an episode called Patterns of Force. Where we get to Nazi Planet. Whoops. And I've been watching ahead a little to try to get our schedule back on track, and I'll give you three guesses how well this series deals with Nazis. Um, badly? And the first two don't count. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've not seen this one yet, but, uh, yeah, this is, I have uh, some bad feelings about that. Are they justified? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just like this episode may argue some things that the Nazis did. Damn it, Star Trek, why do you have to screw it up like this? Mm-hmm. Ugh. They are not, it's, I don't know. I don't know. At one point, Spock says to Kirk, you make a fine Nazi, and we were just like, yep, yeah, can't argue. Yeah, that actually kind of, that, that, that plays out, yeah. So yeah, this is, um... I'm not going to say it's the worst one, and it's, it doesn't deal with things as badly as it could, but oh, no. Mm. Oh, no. Yeah. Also, I'm looking at the cast list here, and there's like 40 guest stars in this thing. Well, they had only the one guest star the the, you know, the episode we just did, so you know, just have a pile of people show up the next time. Oh, great. You know, they just out. love to make me try to figure out how to pronounce people's last name. Um, Winter Soul... Um... Noland, um, Homier, Horgan, Horgan. But you can join us <laughs> next week to see how good Shatner looks in SS boots next time on Watches of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, where's my Nazi punching gauntlet, Gepwin? have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. 
Find and follow Watches of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Maury's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.